After living in DC for a few years, I've become a daily witness to the statues of soldiers galloping on horses, politicians enthroned on gigantic ancient chairs holding scrolls presumably of some ancient wisdom, and a raiders frozen during an impassioned speech. The memorials to political events and figures sprinkled throughout the city are rarely understated pieces of art. They often clumsily navigate the process of portraying a semi-realistic figure alongside abstract ideals like equality, suffrage, and liberty. Political events etched in stone to be larger than life give everyone at the capital the idea that politics is indeed something very commendable, stemming from the noblest of origins. But one public art project reverses this trend of valorizing politics. Havel's place does not inspire awe. It is the opposite of the grandiose, anachronistic approximation of Greco-Roman architecture many landmarks in DC are characterized by. It is composed of two garden chairs around a table with a tree growing through the middle. Rather than a statue hoisting a sword or an overwhelming temple to our ideals, the simple scene of Havel's place represents its message in a much more understated manner. A place for open, democratic debate. Monuments to political ideals usually show the endpoint of the ideal at play, but in Havel's place, it shows the beginning of democracy, a simple conversation between equals. October 3rd, 2023 marks the 10th anniversary of the Havel's Place installation, situated in the capital, nestled in the corner of the Alumni Square at Georgetown University, the first of a series that have now been placed across the globe. In this episode, I want to talk about the ideas behind Havel's Places and their increasing absence in our lives. But I cannot do this without explaining the man they are named after, Václav Havel, and how he and his fellow dissidents in Czechoslovakia inspired a moral revolution, leading very quickly to a political revolution. Importantly, one without violence or bloodshed. A rare gift in the annals of history. What is now the Czech and Slovak republics used to be one state. Founded in 1918, declaring independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire with the support from U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, Czechoslovakia elected Thomas Garig Masek as its first president. A poor working-class boy turned Czechoslovakia's foremost sociologist and intellectual, Thomas Masaryk began the Czechoslovakian trend of highly cerebral political leaders. And this trend has persisted for decades with many leaders of various political allegiances holding PhDs in the humanities and arts. The revival of Czech and Slovak national identities was intimately tied to the newly established constitutional democracy, which inspired in its citizenry a liberal pride. It is truly tragic that a budding constitutional democracy, a mere 20 years later, would be surrendered to Nazi Germany by Britain and France. In 1938, at the Munich Conference, in a bid to appease Adolf Hitler's ambitions to avoid war, Britain and France gave Czechoslovakia to the Nazis. Without condemning or condoning it, as we all know, the strategy of appeasement failed, with the world being plunged into the Second World War. Throughout this war, Czechoslovakia was occupied by Nazi forces, aimed to eradicate the Czech and Slovak people. Despite the horrors that they faced, the nation of Czechoslovakia made it through the war without losing its national identity or succumbing to the allures of fascism. But the end of the war in 1945 did not mean an end to Czechoslovakia's tribulations. Rather than restoring its constitutional democracy, in 1948, 
the Soviet Union forces swapped places with the Nazis and became the new occupational forces. Barbed wire and watchtowers were erected at the country's border, enclosing a new involuntary citizenry. Political opponents and dissidents to the new regime were purged, and an atmosphere of permanent occupation and fear was firmly established. Under communist economic policies, Czechoslovakia began a slow descent into economic decline. Despite boasting some of the highest living standards in the USSR throughout its 41-year Soviet rule, typically communists are anathema to libertarians like the crowd at Cato. But I find myself being obligated to praise Alexander Dubek, appointed as leader of the Czechoslovakian state-backed Communist Party on January 5, 1968. Unlike his predecessor, he wished to establish socialism with a human face more in line with Czechoslovakian norms of liberality and tolerance. He quickly reversed many hardline policies, granting much greater freedom of the press, travel and assembly, and even limiting the powers of the dreaded secret police. This brief period of hope was dubbed the Prague Spring. With the opening up of Czechoslovakia came an unprecedented dissemination and discussion of newly available information. While researching, I came across one account of a taxi driver saying no one talked about football while drinking anymore, only politics, a reflection of the widespread hunger for knowledge the occupation had repressed. With new information came new demands, with many establishing groups to bolster the wave of civil liberties and democratic reform. People such as the screenwriter Jan Proska called for freedom of speech and end to censorship, two things the USSR could not hold together without. Though Czechoslovakians enjoyed their recovered freedoms, Soviet leadership in Moscow fretted that even the slightest chink in their armor would lead to the dissolution of their empire of satellite states. USSR agents surveyed budding dissidents for the first three months of Prague Spring. Dubek was summoned to Dresden, where he bravely refused Soviet demands to reverse his liberalization policies. In response, the Soviet Union pressured Dubek into meeting in Bratislava. The whole meeting was a sham to buy time. Two weeks later, on August 20th, 1968, 200,000 Soviet troops marched into Czechoslovakia to reverse Dubek's work. To achieve this, the occupying forces implemented a policy euphemistically named normalization policies. Nearly a million citizens lost their jobs or were demoted for participating in the Prague Spring. Censorship was not only reimposed, but doubled down to the highest degree. The situation was so extreme that in 1969, a student named Jan Palak set himself on fire in the middle of Prague to protest censorship an event that harrowed the conscience of the Czechoslovakians who kept their heads bowed lower than ever under the new regime. During this miserable period, every aspect of Czechoslovakian society was tightly regulated, so much so that one even needed an official license to perform music. Though, artists and bands outside of the regime's acceptable standards began to establish a thriving underground world of authentic art so desperately lacking in the sterile communist regime bent on normalization. One such group was a band named The Plastic People of the Universe, a psychedelic rock band heavily inspired by Frank Zappa while taking influence from jazz music. One of the members was celebrating his wedding by having rock bands play for his 400 guests at his home village hosting the wedding. This seemingly innocent event caused alarm to the communist authorities, who arrested band members and attendees alike for supposedly disturbing the public peace with songs that contained, and I quote, grossly indecent and vulgar expressions. Throughout the trial, authorities maintained 
they were merely prosecuting hooligans for public disorder. But their intentions were thinly veiled and the reality was very obvious. There was no real crime afoot, but the lifestyle of the band members and their free-spiritedness and their expressive nature were in direct opposition to normalization, meaning the regime must find a convenient crime to prosecute. Disgusted by the trial of the plastic people of the universe, the philosopher Jan Potochka emerged in the political scene. Quickly she publicly in defense of the band members as authentic individuals who led the responsible and authentic life of searching out what no other can do in your place. One person very closely following the plastic people of the universe was Václav Havel, who by 1977 had become recognized in dissident circles for his plays critiquing the insanity of ideology taken to the extreme. Havel had followed the musical underground and was immediately sympathetic to the plastic people of the universe's persecution by the communist regime, which he had mutually suffered years prior. The sight of young people on trial simply for performing music touched the hearts of many. A portion of those who were sufficiently distraught when they realized the extreme need for reform and pushback against efforts of normalization. Patochka alongside Havel and a few dozen more intellectuals founded Charter 77. An organization composed of people of all political, religious and moral persuasions, united together by conscience and civic responsibility. But Charter 77 was not explicitly a political organization. In Charter 77's first publication, its members declared, Charter 77 is a free, informal and open community of people of different beliefs, different faiths and different professions, united by the will to strive individually and collectively for the respect of civic and human rights in our country and the whole world. Charter 77's immediate aim in Havel's words was a real everyday struggle for a better life here and now. However, the communist authorities acted quickly, arresting Havel and Jan Potochka and other members of Charter 77 nearly immediately. After an exhausting 11-hour interrogation of an older man in ill health, Jan Potochka died in police custody. His Socratic death galvanized members of Charter 77 committed to a program promoting freedom of public expression and religion. Charter 77 aimed to promote what is called civil society, the invaluable sinews of our world that are eroding in our increasingly politicized world dominated by the state. Civil society denotes institutions and organizations distinct from governments and businesses made for profit. The aims of institutions and civil society are varied and open-ended from intellectual, educational, spiritual and health concerns. Examples of civil society include schools, universities, advocacy groups, churches and sports associations. Civil society is composed of collective action, but unlike government, it has no coercive features. Thinkers such as Adam Ferguson in the 18th century have stressed a free society cannot first exist without a civil society. But under the communist regime of Czechoslovakia, civil society had been completely obliterated. Everything operated not only under the communist government but also under the official party ideology. With the population under widespread surveillance, civil society was torn from its roots and replaced with a depersonalized bureaucracy operating under a mandatory ideology. Musicians and artists all had to be approved by the regime. In fact, every single aspect of society was regulated, commanded and shaped by the communist state. Spontaneity and creativity languished under the officialdom of public officials enforcing a strict, rigid ideological system over every single individual. 
Havel outlined Czechoslovakia's problem in his most famous essay dedicated to his former mentor, Jan Potočka. His essay was entitled, The Power of the Powerless. He explained that the current regime was not merely totalitarian, but post-totalitarian. A usual totalitarian regime uses naked force and violence to enforce its commands. But the post-totalitarian regime resorts to more cunning tactics. The state forces people to support an often obviously specious official narrative and ideology. Facing demotion, blackmailing, and threats to their families' futures, most cave in, and Havel's words, live within the lie. Everyone under this post-totalitarian system is both a victim of the system while simultaneously having a hand in creating and upholding that same system of oppression. Havel identified the communist ideology as a hypnotic charm that allows people to comfortably live within the lie of a system. Ideology helps bridge the gap between reality and the lie by creating excuses that abdicate individual responsibility. Havel describes ideology in numerous terms, as a secularized religion, as a veil to hide under, even as a glue that holds the totalitarian system in place. To combat such a rationalistic, cold, and calculated tyranny, Havel advised the oppressed to begin living in truth, a phrase he borrowed from fellow dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of the Gulag Archipelago. Individual responsibility was the core of Havel's existential and moral philosophy. Living in truth means defying the humiliating demands of political systems and responding by establishing a life of truth and authenticity to accentuate the lies that others uphold. For Havel, the truth is often actually a destructive ideal, one that flings us into a new world of responsibilities and challenges. Truth may destroy the comfort of our old world, but it brings new possibilities. For Havel, the simple thought that we are not in the best of all worlds possible and that things could, could be better, was the first step in the road to freedom. The younger generations of Charter 77 pushed for more involvement in public activities. Recognizing their reasoning, Havel approved. And in 1987, Charter 77 had its first public demonstration, commemorating the death of former President Thomas Masaryk. Through increased engagement with the public, Charter 77 inspired other movements to mobilize. When the Berlin Wall fell in November 1989, it shattered the illusion of total Soviet control. If one can defect, so can the rest. Protests organized by the newly energized organizations of civil society brought huge numbers of people to the streets. By November 20th, 200,000 people in Prague had taken to the streets, jingling their keys as a symbol of both opening new doors and telling the regime's enforcers to pack it up and go home. Against all odds, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia relinquished power and ended the one-party state that had existed for four decades. The event became known as the Velvet Revolution for its non-violent nature. Quickly, Havel was catapulted to the head of a newly founded civic forum organization and was elected as president of the newly revived democracy. Havel's first ever speech as president, consistent with his writings of the power of the powerless, urged everyone to take responsibility as co-creators of the nightmare they had just emerged from thankfully, without violence. Havel explicitly did not want people going around playing the blame game, bringing retroactive justice to former officials. Everyone was in some way, shape or form responsible, and those without guilt can cast the first stone. This long journey leads us back to Havel's place. (laughs) 
Commentators have highlighted that Havel's places are always dedicated to democratic values. This is partially true, but not the whole story. Understanding the history of Czechoslovakia, Havel's humble monument is dedicated to democracy and civil society. Following the tradition of political thinkers with their heads screwed on correctly, Havel did not hold up politics as some special divine discipline. In fact, he understood that much of the good we tend to ascribe to democracy and politics really happens more often than not in the indispensable world of the civil society. The communist government of Havel's day attempted to place the state at the helm of every part of society. Today, in contemporary America, the federal government is increasingly involved with a longer and longer list of the minutia of life. While we are not as much danger as Havel and other Czechoslovakians back in their regime, when politicians and those who follow them only see political solutions, the results will be dire. America has always been a nation where history is made far, far away from the centers of politics and numerous associations, clubs, and foundations. Commentators as far back as Alexis de Tocqueville have recognized America's strength has been to find non-coercive, non-political solutions when appropriate. But today, when every problem looks like a nail and politicians only have their hammer, state solutions dominate our lives, strangling out dynamism and pluralism in the process. The life and work of Havel should bring hope to libertarians. We are prone to doomsaying and losing hope, but no matter how large the Leviathan state may be, even simple acts grounded in authenticity give us a glimpse into a new life without the state the possible moral alternatives to our current predicament start to jump out more clearly. How we will replace the violence of the state with the peaceful relations between individuals is a topic perfect to discuss at Havel's Place. Thank you for listening to Portraits of Liberty, a project of libertarianism.org. This episode was hosted by Paul Meany and produced by Landry Ayers. Special thanks to the rest of the Libertarianism.org team, Jonathan Fortier, Pericles Niarchos, Allison Yaffe, and Grant Babcock. If you like this and want more, you can visit us online at Libertarianism.org.